1: org enjoy
0: Martinez I'm a professor of anthropology and the honors program coordinator at Holyoke Community College and I am here interviewing Naomi Leslie author of fictions of Integr- integration, American Children's Literature and the Legacies of Brown versus the Board of Education. Thank you. So, I guess first thing, I'd love to hear a little bit about your intellectual journey or inspiration that led you to write this book.
1: So, it was sort of a long journey, um, and it came out of a few different strands of questioning coming together. Um, it actually, in some ways, came first out of my interest in utopian education, which I was uh, researching and pursuing um, as I was doing my PhD for one of my field exams. Um, and, you know, of course, in utopian education, well, philosophy and criticism, especially in the United States, there's a lot of material about. Uh, a lot of critique of racial disparities and disparities based on disability. And um, as a teacher, um as a former middle school teacher, i was I was interested in that, but I was also interested as a children's literature scholar, that um, I wasn't necessarily seeing a lot of that rec- critique reflected in the way that I would expect. So, in other words, I would watch popular movies, popular kids' movies like Sky High and uh, High School Musical, for example, where there's definitely criticism of issues in American schools going on, issues of pedagogy, um, but not racial issues. Not there's there's no like everything's very sort of happy post-racial, and then um, conversely, in popular kids' movies like Remember the Titans, which is a desegregation story, Mm -hmm. Um, Denzel Washington, very, you know, uh, very popular Mm -hmm. movie. Um, There is obviously critique of racism in the process of desegregation, but it's all extracurricular. You never see inside the school. You never see what's going on in the school. Um, And when I thought back to my own childhood growing up and learning about the Brown v. Board of Education decision and its aftermath, you know, I remember pictures, I would, I I remember, you know, clearly, like, pictures of Ruby Bridges flanked by marshals, and the picture of Elizabeth Eckford um, being screamed at, and, you know, the the National Guard uh, in front of Central High in Little Rock, Arkansas. But the stories for me, you know, growing up, They always ended there. They always ended with the kids walking in the door Mm -hmm. and they didn't sort of follow up. Well, what happened in the school? And as a former middle school teacher and as a former person who, you know, went through middle and high school, I wanted to know what was happening in the school. Now, of course, those stories are out there. They've always been out there. The Little Rock Nine, Mm -hmm. many of them have written memoirs about the intense harassment, lynching threats um, that they endured. Um, there were other contemporary accounts of what happened in the schools, um, but they're not. I don't. I don't think they're as popularized as well known as they really need to be. Um, and then as I researched more, and as, certainly as I thought about um, the uh, the issue of disability segregation, mm-hmm. and in terms of what I saw, seen in my own teaching, in terms of resegregation based on tracking. I wasn't seeing that at all, um, really, in children's books. And I wanted to. Um, and so I started asking myself, okay, why am I not seeing what I think I should be seeing? And why, as a kid growing up, was I not told? I mean, I grew up in a pretty segregated school system, um, it was largely white. Um, and yet we were being taught in school that desegregation had happened, but it's not like I was seeing it. So for me as then as a children's literature scholar coming back, I, I started thinking, well, do we think that kids like don't notice <laughs> that mm-hmm. what they learn about in history is not being reflected in, mm-hmm. you know, the media that they're watching um, and in their experience. So I, I wanted to dig into that more and that's really how this book started to develop.
0: Right. Um Actually, since you mentioned sort of this idea of um, you noticing and, you know, other people, are people not noticing, um, I found it really interesting in the introduction that you talk about sort of having a conversation with your roommate regarding the institutional racial imbalances that you were seeing at this um, charter school that you were working at. And you sort of pose the um, the question, you know, after telling the story um, about, you know, the student who sort of informs you that you and other teachers were um, called out as racist, right, um, by a student um, in conversation amongst themselves. You know, you mentioned this idea of, like, you're noticing, and obviously the students were also noticing. Why? given that your your classroom was covering issues of segregation and um, other content that in, includes race and racism why is it that those conversations weren't happening in the classroom in the way that you you and the students seem to be observing can you speak to that a little bit why maybe you know teachers weren't making those conversations those contemporary conversations happen in the classroom
1: i think i think there's a lot of terror and just huge discomfort about talking about racism Um, among adults and certainly with kids Um, it it remind you know it's there's sort of a terror i mean i see it with my students right even that when you know when i assign articles or readings now that deal with racism when we talk about you know issues of racism in the publishing system that many students don't you know in their written responses they don't want to say the word african-american or black because that seems you know or latinx like that seems racist i can't even name you know the the group, and so it's, there's this huge taboo. Um, I was, at the time that, that, um, that incident took place, I was in my mid-twenties. Um, mm-hmm. I was not a completely novice teacher, but neither was I a horrendously experienced teacher. Obviously I was mm-hmm. only in my mid-twenties. Um, and I wasn't trained enough. Most mm-hmm. of my colleagues were not trained enough. And not just that we weren't trained enough in pedagogy, which I don't think we were, most of us. I certainly Mm -hmm. was not. Um, But we also weren't trained enough and we weren't, uh, we didn't have practice just having conversations about race and what we saw um, Mm -hmm. and overcoming that taboo and handling the discomfort both with ourselves, because we Mm -hmm. had not yet learned to, I had not personally, and it's entirely possible that other teachers that I taught with had learned to (laughs) overcome that for themselves, but I had not. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think my roommate had. And um, certainly with our students, we hadn't learned to overcome that taboo. And that does take practice. And it takes being able Mm -hmm. to like name things that make people really uncomfortable. Um, so I think it, you know, if it's such a taboo to say, to, to observe racial disparities in society, right. Mm -hmm. That like, even naming that is then Mm -hmm. sort of, there's the fear of like, oh my God, that means I'm not colorblind. That means I'm racist, and I know that you and I have taught together, and we taught, right. uh, we have taught this wonderful um, uh, excerpt, uh, "The Emperor's Clothes," um, mm-hmm. about the myth of colorblindness. Well, I hadn't read that <laughs> article <laughs> when I was teaching in my mid twenties, um, and so, you know that that now that that taboo is now something that I try to consciously counter both within myself, and it continues to be hard, but, and also with my students and to say out loud, like, look, I get that you're feeling really uncomfortable about talking about this and it's okay to feel uncomfortable.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, you know, we've, like you mentioned, we've taught together. So, you know, sort of getting students to understand that all change is uncomfortable, right? Um, That discomfort doesn't mean that they're not safe, that, you know, discomfort is, it's uncomfortable for everybody when it's new, when something's new, but that we can learn from it. Um, And I think you know, speaking to, you know, um, reading about your, you know, your story and that experience, I think it was very brave to speak about those moments of discomfort of, you know, maybe you would, if you could go back to that time and do things a little bit differently. Um, but you can't but what you can do is learn from them so i just i want to let you know that i i just i really thought that it was very powerful thank you if you could create a children's book about brown versus the board of eds historic legacy challenges and all um for an audience your son's age how would you go about it um the other if you know The other way I sort of frame this question is, is if I was to ask your son about this particular piece of history, what would he tell me? What do you think he would tell me?
1: I wish I knew. I I have no idea. (laughs) I do not have a smart answer to this question. Um, And of course, the older he gets, the less I am, you know, the primary voice in his education Um, and it constantly frustrates me that in the um you know nominally at least very liberal and progressive and very predominantly white town still where i live um that you know every single year the only black history he seems to learn is martin luther king and rosa parks and so like uh, you know, I'm constantly going on vendors saying, like, where is WBP DuPont, who is local to our area? Um, you know, we're in and trying to find other, you know, trying to <laughs> open other conversations and find other resources. Um, and I the reason I don't know what he would say is half the time he just brushes me off like, yeah, that's mom again. Um, uh, <laughs> trying to bore me. Um, <laughs> but you know, my hope is that he would, because you, might wanna,
0: you might want to tell the story with Legos. I have oh, already figured out idea. that your, that your kid loves Legos. I personally think you should tell the story through some Legos. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, uh, um,
1: that's a great idea. I have overcome that. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Um, But one of the things that we have talked about, and again, like, I have no idea what penetrates, um, but we have talked about the issue of resegregation um, Mm -hmm. through residents, through um, redlining and housing laws, um, through disability diagnosis. Mm
0: -hmm. um, And
1: And does he notice
0: how white the town is? (laughs) Does he notice how white the town is that you live in? I
1: would think he would because when we moved from North Carolina, he in North Carolina, where we lived before this, um, he went to a predominantly black preschool. All of his teachers were African-American. Most of his friends were uh, were black. And then, you know, there's this big change. Um, So I think he has. But sometimes it's hard to pull out of him what he what he notices and what he doesn't notice yeah um but you you know and one of the things especially uh, sometimes as his friends acquire diagnoses of disabilities Mm -hmm. is we've talked about how um there's disparities in diagnosis and um sometimes Mm -hmm. you know two kids of different races who behave the same way will give get different diagnoses Um, and therefore different treatment. And I would say, you know, the first part of your question was if I were to create a children's book about the legacies of Brown v. Board of Education, which first of all, I would not want to be the person creating, Uh, (laughs) because there's enough whiteness in publishing already. Um, But I think, you know, there are lots of really, really great books about the initial backlash against Brown v. Board of Education. And there are fantastic counter-narratives from African-American authors about um, the loss of black schools and the firing of black teachers and the sort of Mm -hmm. ethos of love and support and nurturing um, that, that was a loss. What I think, the legacies that I would love to see more represented Mm-hmm. Um, in more direct ways, because they're re- represented, as I talk about in the third and fourth chapters, they're represented obliquely, but not directly, um, is the the resegregation by disability right. and tracking. Um, okay. I think, you know, that's one of the, the things that kids see really clearly that mm-hmm. in, in their lives. And I think it's pretty clear. And from my teaching days, I think they see mm-hmm. it really clearly.
0: Um, okay, but cool. it's not represented in media. Okay, great. Um, so as you know, I have a two and a half year old and I'm always looking for books that provide a diverse and anti-oppressive lens along with books that are bilingual. Is there a favorite toddler's book about Brown v. Um, board of Ed, or racism that you could share with us, and why?
1: Perhaps not toddler, but preschool. Um, gotcha. Yeah, I think Ruby Bridge's own story, uh, her own mm-hmm. um, photojournalism book of her experience, which is called Through My Eyes, um, is fantastic, and um, good for sort of many ages of children, and I think mm-hmm. it's really incredibly valuable to have her story as opposed to the stories told about her, um, mm-hmm. um, Dorian Rappaport's The School is Not White, um, is a good one that offers a little bit of a counter-narrative, like it doesn't sort of just have a simplistic happy ending, um, And, um, a newer one by, um, Duncan Tonatia, um, is, and I don't remember the title, but it's about Sylvia Mendez, the Sylvia Mendez case, um, that preceded Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and that's incredibly valuable as sort of a precursor to Brown v. Board of Ed. (laughs) Um, and also because it. In, it sort of invites in the conversation that lots of other racial groups in the United States have also historically and continue to be segregated.
0: Thank you. <clears throat> so you brought up um that there are, you know, other groups whether it's Latinx or um Asian American or Native American groups. Um that, you know, would complicate, um, the integration narratives. Do you have any, you know, is, is that sort of future research that you're thinking about for yourself? Um, are you collaborating with others on that as a potential future research?
1: Not currently as, um, as a publishing research, Mm -hmm. uh, um, project, but, um, as you know, because we teach together, I also have begun teaching with another of our colleagues, um, who's a Spanish teacher. and we um we recently taught co-taught a course on um, bilingual uh, bilingual student <laughs> experience, um both in education and in life. and um and so, as part of preparing for that course, I did some really, fascinating reading and research on um, the ongoing experience of language segregation, which yep. overlaps with race and is also yes. not the same as race. And yes. I think that's a huge topic that I, I'm increasingly very interested in, even though I'm not ready to pursue it for
0: publishing. <laughs> right. No rush, no rush. I'm just, you know, probing. Um, so You mentioned this in your book, and um, I was wondering if you could share um, using an example. So you talk a little bit about children's literature, like other media and art, both reproducing and uh, r- both reproducing sort of racist and oppressive ideologies and also countering, right? Creating counter narratives. And I was wondering if there's an example that you could share where um, a book might do one or both of these things, for example. Um, I feel like sometimes when we you know, are watching, I was just having a conversation because Hamilton is now on Disney plus. Mm -hmm. And so having a conversation with a few people about sort of Hamilton and its potential impact, right. That there are a lot of people who really love Hamilton and are really interested in the way that hip hop and, you know, this Mm -hmm. music genre, which is new to Broadway, right. And is being used, but that it reproduces a lot of the, Um, myths of the founding fathers as these, you know, amazing dudes. Um, So it's, I'm, I'm interested if you have sort of an example that you can share with us about how you can see children's lit in, in one book, maybe you see both of those pieces. I think
1: in many of the books that, uh, that I talk about Mm -hmm. in this monograph you can definitely see both pieces. And two of my personal favorites, I, I think, do both of those. Um, and one of them that um, when I've spoken to uh, other people about the book, this started from my dissertation. So when somebody in my <laughs> dissertation committee you know, talked to me about the book, um, she was incredibly upset by this one example of Dorothy Sterling's novel, Mary Jane, which was... Mm-hmm. Very like people, you know, decades after this book was uh, uh, featured in the Scholastic Book Club um, Mm -hmm. said that it really like influenced them. They loved it. They loved seeing, you know, that she she made sure an African-American artist had created the cover with this sort of, you know, girl with a ponytail with their school books. Um, The cover impacted them. This this book meant a lot to them. Um, and Dorothy Sterling herself. So, the, um, and this is a wonderful publication history, um, and by wonderful, I mean really screwed up. Uh, that <laughs> that I talk about in chapter one, where the year before *Mary Jane* was published, um, Dorothy Sterling and um, a photographer friend um, did a tour of the United States the Southern United States and schools that were desegregating and spoke to a lot of students, did a photo journalism essay and recorded bluntly when students were talking about being threatened with ice picks um, and having acid thrown on their clothing in school. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And they published it Mm -hmm. and it went out of print within a year because it was refused for, it wasn't directly censored. Like no, nobody openly said this makes the U.S. look bad, mm-hmm. but it was refused for the Informational Media Guarantee Program, which was a program that would um, basically allow um, allow books to be sold overseas um, mm-hmm. in a way that uh, in a way that wouldn't cost the publishers too much money. Um, okay. And so it was basically when when the export of that book was made not lucrative then it went out of print so she took a lot of the material that how Mary Jane came about is she took a lot of the material from those interviews and she crafted this novel but she created it for middle school she cut out you know all of the direct violence um I think the worst thing that happens directly physically to Mary Jane is she gets tripped in the, the aisle um and there's a bully mm-hmm. who says you know mean things to her I mean Mary Jane clearly goes through a lot of pain in this novel, but it also very clearly is cleaned up from the end, gotcha. and um, and it, it it sort of follows this classic school school story narrative where she makes friends with one sympathetic white girl who then sort of like through an extracurricular activity brings her into the fold of the school where she you know joins the science club and then potentially has you know other friends besides this little girl sally and dorothy sterling herself um years after mary jane was published in a speech said that she had super mixed feelings about what she'd done with mary jane Mm -hmm. that she did you know she felt on the one hand that kids needed to read this story and if that's what it took to get it published that's what she was going to do And on the other hand, she's like, I knew this was completely unrealistic. I gave it this kind of happy ending where she gets to make friends with a white girl and maybe integrate into the life of the school. She's like, that was a total pop out. Um, And she knew it. Um, And at the same time, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of subtle countering of, um, of racist ideology, um, where Mary Jane, despite wanting to desegregate, also talks to her grandfather, who's a prominent scientist who tells her, you know, I got a really great education with my, you know, at the, um, at the all black school, I'm a scientist too. Like that Mm -hmm. you don't have to go to the white community, like by all means go to the white community. We support you. We love you. You should be able to do this, but Mm -hmm. we have resources in the Black community too. Mm -hmm. So those, you know, she she built in this counter narrative as well Mm -hmm. into this heavily censored book.
0: I guess the question the the question that popped into my head as as you were sharing a little bit about Mary Jane is. Is the subtle counter-narrative too subtle
1: Mm -hmm.
0: for people? You know what I mean? So, like, the question becomes, you know, we are, you know, as scholars, we dig into, heck, I I can't watch a a TV program without thinking about all these issues, right? Right. Um, And I'm trying to teach my kid how to do that. And she's two and a half. (laughs) Um, I can't watch Ariel, the, the, you know, the mermaid princess without being terrified. And she loves it because my brother, you know, wanted to show it to her. And I was like, oh gosh, (laughs) that was a mistake. Um, That was his favorite musical when he was little uh, or story. And when he was little, Um, but it's, I guess the question is, right, how do we better ensure that when kids are reading, they're really reading between the lines, which I think is what you're hinting at, right, that there's things in here that she waved in to tell a different story, right, while at the same time doing the reproducing of some of the stereotypical, um, white dominant, you know, white savior. Cause you could call that little kid that saved her right. As, mm-hmm. as a little white savior. Right. So we even yeah. are having sort of the white savior mentality in these books. And so, you know, it, it, I guess it just bears the question, like is the counter narrative sometimes too subtle?
1: Yes. My answer is unequivocally yes. It often is, and sometimes even when it's not, what I find is, you know, when I each attacks, it gets ignored. It, it gets ignored. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, um, not only is it too subtle in Mary Jane, and mm-hmm. that's definitely the case, um, but um, but I, you know, as as an English teacher, I'm constantly, and I'm not just as an English teacher, I know because we've talked together that, you know, people in other disciplines like anthropology, uh, you know, fight this battle too, um, of uh, um, confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. That um, if, you know, in the United States, our kids are really drilled with this ideology of happy endings, mm-hmm. of rising above sort of surmounting obstacles mm-hmm. um, of, of overcoming, you know, through friendship um, of racism being in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, I could keep going with a lot of these. Right. right. And um, if that's what you want to see and what you expect to see,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right. you're going to see
0: it. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, so as a Latina mom, as I mentioned, I have a two and a half year old daughter who is also light skinned. I've struggled to ensure that she has a diverse range of stories in English and in Spanish um, that I want her to have. And you have been extremely helpful um, with books and, um, you know, my own research, making sure that she sort of sees a diverse range when it comes to gender and, you know, is starting to understand, you know, things like love is love, you know, and that you can have two daddies or two mommies or, you know, someone who maybe identifies as a parent instead of a mommy or a daddy. And um, so I'm just curious, how has this research um, and writing this book influenced you as a white woman and as a white mom to a white little boy?
1: Certainly it's influenced me as a white woman to. Revise, revisit mentally, um, and really deeply question my past learning through school, my past behavior, um, both as a student and as a teacher, um, my current, you know, the things that I thought that I knew about my country's history, about my Childhood about my educational experiences. Um, I absolutely have um, have had to relearn and continue to to relearn. Um, you know, I I didn't. It was certainly not until college that I learned about redlining, mm-hmm. um, and it was not until I started doing research for this book that I learned about. Um, counter-narratives of Brown v. Board of Education and the incredible, the, the incredible strength um, <laughs> and fantastic teaching that was coming out of segregated Black schools in the <laughs> South that was deliberately squashed by white communities um, desegregating. Um, and as a white mom, I think for me, one of the things that this research really brings home, well, there's a few things that this working on this book has brought home. And one of them is that books are not enough. They're not, I mean, they're a starting place. They are important. Obviously, I'm an English teacher, so I can you know, and I and, and I'm a literature scholar, um, and books have always been incredibly influential for me. Mm -hmm. But um, I am very wary, I've become increasingly wary of um, a phenomenon that Hazel Carby talks about of sort of desegregating through literature instead of Mm -hmm. um, through human beings, Mm -hmm. that like we can't um, sort of go out and research and have a, a rainbow of representation in our literature and not do anything in real life. To make Mm -hmm. those structural and not do anything about, you know, to correct residential segregation or Mm -hmm. um, uh, police violence, economic Mm -hmm. disparities, um, disability uh, disparities, like the, because because it's too easy to separate those Mm -hmm. and put the book in one category with all of our confirmation biases. And so I, you know, I, I think it's hard, you know, as my son gets older and I, I have less influence over the, over him. I I certainly think about modeling for him. Like, Hey, Mm -hmm. you know, do you want to come to this protest with me? Do you want to help me make a sign? Do you want to like, help Mm -hmm. me send these postcards? Um, But um, I also, you know, I am aware that he also at a certain point is going to have to come to it himself. I can't like Mm -hmm. force him into it. And one of the things that this research also emphasized for me is the sort of simultaneous contradiction that not only is media not enough, but school is not Mm -hmm. enough, right? Like Mm -hmm. we can't like just sort of solve desegregation and in the schools and culturally relevant pedagogy in the schools and make the schools perfect. And that will like make all of racism and injustice go away. That Mm -hmm. is not going to happen. Like that's, Mm -hmm. it's just not enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it was incredibly powerful for me in this research to keep on reading, you know, the emphasis that Brown v. Mm -hmm. Board of Education was just a strategy to an end goal. Mm -hmm. It was never really just about the schools. It was supposed to be, it was just um, one step toward wider racial equality that never happened. And the other side of it, that's the contradiction is that at the same time, school matters a lot. Kids are there for 30 hours a week. Mm -hmm. My kid spends more time in that school building when there's not COVID-19, that is. <laughs> right. As the pandemic, my child spends more time in the school building a lot of weeks than he does with me. Right. And right. so what happens in the school matters. What he sees mm-hmm. in terms of policies, um, mm-hmm. in terms of disciplinary policies, in terms of um, disability disparities, in terms mm-hmm. of economic disparities in his school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pedagogy he sees in his school, that matters.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just gonna say, yeah, because that's yes. Um, so, what challenges did you encounter in doing this research? If any?
1: Oh, of course, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone ever do research on that encounter challenges? Um,
0: I, I did not. So I have no idea. I always encounter challenges. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think some of the challenge is methodology. Okay. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned before, some of the, some of the questions that I had about were, were about things that I was not seeing Why? Okay. you know, not seeing um, representations of contemporary racism in the school systems, for example. Mm -hmm. Plenty of historical racism, we'll just push that into historical fiction, fine, but not contemporary racism. Um, It was hard to find those books. It was hard to find books that dealt with um, racially based disparities and disability. Um, Hard to find books on issues, uh, not hard to find books on issues of achievement gap necessarily, but, um, hard to find books that sort of directly linked that to issues of residential segregation and, um, sort of as a longer legacy of Brown. So then the question is, if you don't find something, how do you research that? And there are a lot of, you know, really, um, groundbreaking scholars who uh, who have done work and written about um, issues in the, the publishing industry, the children's literature publishing industry, um, issues of whiteness and racism um, and subtle censorship. And I absolutely built on the work of those scholars. But in the end, there's a lot of unanswerable questions. Um, okay. So I, you know, I do the best I can with finding books that hint obliquely and then pairing that with, um, you know, what Zeta Elliott and Joel Taxel and Phil Nell mm-hmm. talk about in the public, you know, what they found in the publishing system. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other issue, the, the other challenge of methodology is in some ways the flip side. When I do find something like a really special book about contemporary racism, like Mildred Pitts Walters, Because We Are, which she's like my hero. And I love this book. It's out of print. Um, It is, you know, I wanted to talk about it because it was so unusual. Um, You know, really one of a kind in terms of how it really addressed bluntly the issues of racism that she was seeing in the 1980s from um, kids in desegregation programs. Okay. Um, I know it's not representative, and so one of the things we talk about in you know in research is in terms of tracing legacies in children's literature is, well, you know what what stories are being told to children about the legacies of Brown v. Board of Education, and this is an outlier. I know it's mm-hmm. an outlier. How, how do I how do I justify talking about it, right? When I know it's not representative. Of the stories that mm. children are are reading, but I still feel it's important to talk about and um, and give some airtime to,
0: right. Yeah. Um, um. So tell us something about the contribution that you hope this book will make to children's literature. To Overall, sort of scholarship, you know, what 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 do you want the legacy of of this to be?
1: Well, there's so much that has been written from so many different perspectives about Brown v. Board of Education. It is a very covered topic from the perspective of law um, and history and education. But I hope that. Adults who are writing about Brown v. Board of Education and researching it will also come to regard children's literature as an archive that they can go to and learn from. Because I do think it's that in in sort of adults talking to other adults and working with the writing of other adults, right, um, that what children, you know, even though these adults... um, have paid attention to the experiences of children. Mm -hmm. They haven't paid attention necessarily to the media that is being in the messages that are being given to children. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that's an important archive um, that's highlighted in this book. Um, And I also hope that this book helps us to think about the ways that pedagogy is entwined with the success of desegregation, because again, we do tend to separate those things. We tend to say like, okay, well, we have to improve pedagogy. And there's this set of critiques. And then we also have to look at desegregation. But again, you know, with the kids spend 30 hours a week in the school building, um, even though the school is not enough, if you don't make pedagogy work, you know, if you don't sort of improve the school experience, then also desegregation will not work. And no, that will not solve racial justice. It won't. But kids care not only about um, whether they're experiencing racism from the teacher, obviously, they, they definitely care a lot about that. They care if they're being really? bullied, right? But they also care if school is boring or not. Mm-hmm. They also care if the work is worthwhile to them or not. Rainbow. They care if uh, you know, they feel that school is a place where they can pursue their intellectual interests and have those valued mm-hmm. or not. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that the what I try to do, one of the things I try to do in this book is to look at desegregation, school desegregation along with what actually is going on in the school and what children really sort of want to get out of school mm-hmm. because I don't think we should ignore that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, I wanna thank you uh, for talking with me and also for writing this influential book
1: thank you very much thank you so much for your time thank you for listening to shisai podcasts you can find more materials and features from the society for the history of children and youth online shcy.org